Hello and welcome to Say More On That, a podcast where academics can talk about their policy-relevant research. Today I'm so excited to have the opportunity to chat with Gary Winslet. He's an assistant professor of political science at Middlebury College, and he did a postdoctoral fellowship at the European University Institute in Florence. He received his PhD from Boston College in 2016, where he was the first in his family to attend college, and he graduated from the University of Florida in 2009. His first book, Competitiveness and Death, Trade and Politics in Cars, Beef, and Drugs, comes out in March. He enjoys skiing, hiking, and board games with his wife, Becky, and his daughter, Adelaide. Thank you so much for being here today, Gary. Thanks for having me on. So can you just give us a better sense of who you are um, and a little bit more about yourself and your hobbies? Firstly, what book are you reading now? So I'm actually reading a collection of books um, on sort of like international parenting styles. Um, so one is Octoon Baby, and it's about like how Germans raise these really self-reliant kids. Um, and another one is Bringing Up Baby, and it's about like French parenting. Um, and then the one I actually started the first is the, the Happiest Kids in the World, and it's about Dutch parenting. Um, and then I'm also reading Parenting Without Borders. I kind of have a little space in... Like, I, I don't have to teach right now because it's uh, January term here at Middlebury, and I taught last January term. Um, and I have a daughter who just turned two back in December. Um, and when we were sort of getting ready to have her, we were thinking about things that, like, really mattered a lot to us. Um, and I really wanted my daughter to be, like, adventurous and open to new experiences and have this, like, wide eating palate. Um, <laughs> you know, I want her to be one of these kids that only eats, like, chicken nuggets and rice. Um, and I read this book called French Kids Eat Everything. Um, and it was fantastic, and it just had all these, um, not just not just tips and tricks, but like a whole broader discussion about raising kids to have these like broad palates, um, things like not letting them snack, right? Because if they snack and they get to dinner, of course they're picky because they're not that hungry. Um, but if you don't let them snack, they get to dinner pretty hungry, and so they eat. Um, there's been a lot about having, uh, you know, a newborn and then toddler that's been hard but the eating has gone super super well and because that went so well i kind of wanted to dig into some more of these like international parenting books um just to see how people do the child rearing thing in like other places that is so cool that's such an interesting answer um but i have to tell you you should be aware that anything that you read now and get excited about you should be prepared for your kids to just go like wildly overboard. Um, and I say this not as a parent, but uh, as someone whose mother has frequently told her that she wished she hadn't read C. Jane Wynne. Because um, my mom's constantly like, yeah, I wanted you to be independent and not afraid to go off on your own. And I didn't think that you would be so independent and go so far <laughs> off on your own. <laughs> so, uh, Gary, what's one thing that you are just unreasonably particular about? Um, so I, I study trade, and I get really, really, really cranky when people blame a lot of manufacturing job losses on trade, and they don't mention automation. Um, another research project I'm doing right now is looking at automation, and it's just so clear, particularly outside of textiles and furniture, how much more the job losses are due to automation than to trade. Um, and I, I get kind of persnickety about it because this really matters to a lot of people like the way the way I think about it is like I'm a doctor standing over a patient who's having a seizure right there's lots and lots of economic pain right now in this country 
And I'm in this argument with a different doctor who has a totally what I think is a wrong diagnosis of what's causing the seizures. And so I kind of get like really particular and persnickety about it because like it really does matter for helping relieve some of that economic pain in the country and, and sort of reverse uh, widening inequality. You know, right now, in, in, this was the case before COVID, but COVID's only made it worse. Right now we have over 20% unemployment for people in the bottom wage quintile and less than 5% unemployment for people in the top quintile, right? That's, it's just not good. And so I can get like really particular about pointing out that the story is really an automation story, much more than a trade story in terms of job losses, job polarization, and inequality. Yeah, I agree that automation and the shifting nature of manufacturing in the U.S. is an underexplored part of this K-shaped recovery that we keep hearing about, where those that were doing well before continue to do better, and those who are already feeling the cruncher are, you know, even more squeezed and potentially left behind. Um, Right. So our our final sort of getting to know you question is, how do you take your coffee? Uh, I don't know that I give a simple answer to anything. (laughs) I take coffee all kinds of ways. Um, I, as you sort of mentioned in the intro, I lived in Italy for a year, and so I really got into the habit of having a cappuccino in the morning. Um, and so at home, I like to make a cappuccino, um, particularly because they're like way overpriced at coffee shops. Um, you know, if you go to Italy, a cappuccino is like a euro. And here in the United States, it's like three seventy-five. So I like to make those at home. Um, but if I'm like out at like a nice coffee place, like an AeroPress is a great way to like just have a really, really good coffee flavor. And if you're going to do that, you got to have it black, right? Um, you know, if a coffee is really acidic, like at Starbucks, you might want to like a splash of milk to, to cut down on some of that. So, yeah, I, I like coffee all different kinds of ways. Do you have an espresso machine at home to make your yeah. cappuccino? That's impressive. So getting to a conversation about your research, uh, you have a new book coming out on regulatory barriers in trade in which you argue, uh, which you argue are even more important than tariffs or quotas. Can you give us a sense of how regulations on everyday items vary between countries and why these differences matter? Yeah. Uh, so for, for anybody listening, please give me 60 seconds before your eyes glaze over <laughs> at the term regulatory trade barriers. I know that sounds like the most boring thing, Nora, but I promise you it's really, really cool. All right. So let's think about like car safety differences. Okay. So in the EU, Cars have to be designed and tested, not just to protect people inside the vehicle, but also to protect anyone who's struck by the vehicle. And the reason they do this is because, you know, in the EU, they have much more urban environments and a lot more of their automobile crashes involve striking a pedestrian, right? And so they have a whole battery of tests, including this thing called the child head form test. Well, they'll they'll shoot a ball into the hood of the car to see if it absorbs impact, right? We don't have that kind of uh, set of tests for cars in the United States, right? Um, Airbags are also really different. In the EU, because most people wear their seatbelts, airbags are designed and tested based on the idea that the people inside of the the car are wearing their seatbelts. So you know more or less where the the occupant's head is going to be. In the United States, because so many people don't wear seatbelts, we actually design and test airbags based on the presumption that the occupants are not wearing their seatbelts, which is why... In the United States, airbags are so much larger and explode with so much more force. Now, if you're an automaker, this presents a real challenge to you, right? Either 
you because it's very very difficult to design an airbag that will meet both sets of standards so you can either totally forego entering one market or you can have two separate production lines so it raises costs for you if you're an automaker right um in the united states um pork farmers can give uh, their pigs this thing called rectopamine it's an antibiotic um, but it also promotes growth in china that's not allowed so what does that mean it means that pork producers in the united states have a tough time exporting to the Chinese market, right? So if you look at any of a number of products, and in my book, I sort of look at the auto industry and the meat industry and pharmaceuticals. And so um, that's sort of where, where my research focuses. But if you look at any range of products, you can see these big regulatory differences and they have huge impacts on international trade. Um, you know, this is trillions of dollars in goods. Um, and it these are all kinds of goods that affect people's lives. Like, the car you drive, the food you eat, the medicines you take, are they affordable? Are they safe? Right? And because it's affecting all of these major industries, it's really going to affect if businesses are successful and those by extension, if the people who work those businesses have economic security and economic well-being. So as much as these things sound like the most technical thing in the entire world, and, and they can be technical, they're actually really, really important for thinking through the politics of global commerce. The first few pages of your book just absolutely grabbed me because, uh, and I'm glad to hear you admit that the term, you know, uh, regulatory barriers in trade is not nearly as engaging a phrase as it is, uh, you know, an actual phenomenon in practice. Um, and so I'm like a self-confessed trade nerd that was still skeptical of how interesting this would be. And I can't recommend highly enough to listeners in your book, which is so engaging and makes so clearly the point about how important this is and how it affects, as you just discussed, just a range of goods that we're interacting with every day. Um, Thank you. That's really nice to hear that. That's it's a very high compliment. Thank you. you. Thank you very much. <laughs> no, absolutely no problem. Um, okay, so now that we've covered the scale of the differences and regulations on everyday uh, tradable goods between countries. I'm curious, how do you explain these variations um, in regulations and, and in negotiation outcomes over trade of these goods? Uh, so that's a, that's a great question. Um, so first, I, I want to make a, an important distinction here, is that what I'm looking at is not necessarily the level of regulation, but the extent to which it is a trade barrier, right? So let's imagine two countries, one that has really high environmental standards and the other that has really low environmental standards. And the difference in the standard is presenting some sort of barrier to businesses, right? Now, what I'm interested in is not how high or low the standard is, but whether or not it shrinks, right? So if you have the low standard country raise its standards to the level of the high standard country, that's still a reduction in the extent of the barrier. Um, and you actually see this a lot. A lot of people assume that there's this big race to the bottom in environmental standards, for example. And really, there's not. I mean, if you if we go back to like David Vogel's research from the mid '90s, his book Trading Up, um, you know, where he talks about the the, the California effect um, and a whole bunch of other dynamics um, that really raise standards as a part of trade negotiations. Um, so if we're thinking about this difference, right, uh, these regulatory trade barriers can either get bigger or they can get smaller or they can stay the same. So I'm asking under what conditions they do each of those and why. 
So if we think about it, the, the entities that are going to be the most impeded by these regulatory barriers are businesses, right? Particularly if those barriers raise their production costs or keep them out of some sort of market, right? Um, they're, now, they're not going to push everywhere to be deregulatory. Even if you're a business who, you know, is the most upstanding business in the world, you don't necessarily want to follow 26 different sets of rules, right? This is why the EU is so helpful for European businesses. Once you're sort of legally producing by this one standard across the continent, right, like that, then you're good to go. And so it, it, they don't like this multiplicity of, of rules, right? And so they're going to be the ones who seek to reduce this difference, right? It will often be the case that activists, however, want to defend some sort of specifically national regulation, right? Most political activity gets done within nation states, right? Like this is just how the international system works. Right. And so if you're an activist, whether it's on labor standards or the environment or consumer protection, it's your national level government that you're going to want to most closely interface with. Right. And so their activists are going to try to defend those specifically national regulations, even if they're regulatory trade barriers, if they perceive those regulations to be the sole effective means of addressing whatever it is they care about. Right. And then the third set of actors are, are government officials. Um, you know, they're going to sometimes side with business, sometimes side with the activists, sometimes try to be kind of in the middle. And this is really going to be based on how much they prioritize trade versus like regulatory independence. This is going to depend on their staffing, right? Like, well, where do they draw their employees from? Um, this is going to depend a lot on their, their political ideas, right? And so if you've got these three sets of actors who are each sort of negotiating and politically engaging with each other around these big regulatory differences, what I argue in the book is that businesses are, are most likely to win if they can effectively frame reducing those barriers in the language of competitiveness, right? So, so I want to slow down here just to, to make sure that this is clear. But if a business can frame reducing that barrier as something that's going to promote national economic competitiveness, that's really going to help them succeed, right? And it's going to help them succeed, one, because things that are related to competitiveness are things businesses are going to be very, very motivated to engage on, right? This is something that really does, you know, inhibit their market access or, or increase their cost. The other thing this does for businesses is that uh, this language of competitiveness is really going to reduce the appearance of parochialism, right? If you're a government official and a business comes to you and they ask you for a favor, you sort of know that they're asking you for a favor. But like if a business comes to you and says, we need you to try to get this trade barrier reduced, that's going to promote American economic competitiveness. Well, now that policy sounds like it's jobs promoting. It doesn't sound parochial at all, right? Like it, it really is going to help pull government officials on the side of business. It's also going to really rhetorically delegitimize that opposition, right? Uh, and the other thing is that you know, economists will point out quite correctly that economic activity is super positive. So everybody can get wealthier at the same time. That's true. But the zero sum framing of economic matters is still really, really popular among both the, the average public and even among, you know, policymakers. And so this, this competitiveness really shifts that in a zero sum. It the competitiveness really plays upon that well. And so the activists, on the other hand, are most likely to be able to defend a barrier um, if they can point to this barrier preventing needless deaths, right? Um, 
preventing death and sort of reducing death related risk is like core to what a lot of government activities are. That's why we have healthcare systems and armies and food inspection and environment and building codes and you name it like that. That's what government does. And so you're, you're entering into a territory where government's already got an interest. Um, and it also means that businesses are going to be really worried about their reputation. Um, and then it also means governments are going to take notice. So this is where the title of the book comes from competitiveness and death. Um, and it's, it's because when we see regulatory barriers go down, it's, most likely because businesses have been able to use a a competitiveness framing and activists uh, are able to defend them when they're able to sort of prevent needless death. And I sort of have a whole bunch of evidence on in favor of this argument uh, throughout the sort of empirical chapters of the book. So fascinating. Um, So how do the politics surrounding regulatory barriers to trade that you identify improve on our existing models of trade? So there are uh, the the first thing that it does, I think, is it takes us actually past some of these like cleavage-based explanations that were great when it came to sort of non-regulatory trade stuff. So like if if you go like look for like who are the gods in trade politics, it's people like Ronald Rogowski, right, who wrote Commerce and Coalitions. He's got this whole explanation around land, labor, and capital. Right. And then Michael Hiscox comes behind him and he sort of talks in, about these cleavages in a different way. And they're based on sector. And, and what these cleavage based explanations do is they say that, hey, there are winners and losers from trade. And so the politics around trade is going to revolve around winners and losers. And like they're great. Like these explanations are super duper solid on like pre regulatory stuff. Like if you go read. Commerce and Coalitions, which is Rogowski's book, it's this like fabulous, but also super succinct, like 200 year history of trade politics from like the early 1800s to like the 1970s. And like, these are really, really good, but like they don't actually help us with these regulatory trade barriers all that much, right? Over and over again, when you start looking at these regulatory barriers and the politics around them, it doesn't break down in a winners versus losers thing. Right. Um, and so what I'm doing is, is trying to, to explain these new trade politics matters in a way that, you know, builds off of those cleavage based explanations, but, but takes us in sort of a new direction. Right. So for a long time, trade politics has really underappreciated how important activists are. Right. If there's sort of one big takeaway um, from my book, you know, it would be that activists really do win more than people think they do. Right. Um, you know, activists have, have long been sort of, ex- I don't want to say entirely excluded, but underappreciated in the political science literature. Um, I think that my book also shows that globalization is a lot less powerful than people think. Um, so there's a lot of reasons why globalization wouldn't make countries change their policies on stuff like defense policy or welfare or infrastructure. But if you're thinking about an area where globalization should be really, really strong, should really force countries to have these like super convergent policy areas, it's here in these regulatory trade barriers, right? Um, because it's going to affect the commercial opportunities that another country has. And so they're going to maybe try to exert pressure for you to change your policies. Um, trade liberalization typically occurs reciprocally, right? And so adjusting policy might get you something from the other country. 
Um, and so there's just a, a lot of reasons why regulatory trade barriers would be an area where globalization should be really, really strong. And even here, national policy stickiness is really, really striking. Um, so there's long been this sort of like argument between different camps in political economy scholarship over like how strong is globalization. Um, and there's, there's sort of one set of scholars who see globalization as exerting this like great deal of pressure on governments to conform to this like golden straitjacket or some other way of saying they've all got to be alike. And then there's a second camp which says like, no, globalization's not as powerful as people think. Um, and my study's really landing in that, that second camp. Um, and so that would be sort of another way um, in which I think it's improving um, what we're current, the sort of current scholarship. Uh, and then, then the final one is just that I think it's a, it's a good political companion to some of the economic theories around trade. Um, new trade theory and sort of funnily titled new new trade theory are, are like good economic theories, but they, they sort of really leave out the politics or in some places just get the politics wrong. Um, and so I'm, at least I hope that my book is sort of an improvement or, or an addition, a productive addition to the scholarship on this issue. Absolutely. Um, and so moving, as you've sort of opened the door towards, moving to some of the policy implications of your work, you mentioned how your study illuminates uh, aspects of globalization that have been underappreciated. Um, I think recent years have kind of demonstrated to us that the, the effortless, prosperous cosmopolitanism that we were promised in the 1990s didn't materialize. Uh, and so I'm curious to hear what you think the implications of your research are for globalization, um, you know, this decade and in coming decades. Um, should we see, you know, potentially a, another surge of efforts towards globalization? Uh, and what would that look like? What's the, the trajectory of globalization in your view in coming decades? Well, so we've got a, as I sort of alluded to earlier, there's this big debate about job losses and, you know, the, the, the evidence really is on the automation side. But that doesn't change the fact that over the last 30 to 40 years, we've seen significant economic stagnation at the same time that we've seen this rise in globalization. Now, people who associate these those two are getting it wrong. Those two aren't that closely connected. But it's easy to understand why there would be confusion here, why there would be people who think globalization is, you know, the reason why there's been so much stagnation um, for sort of the, the bottom half of the income spectrum. Um, what I would say is that my study showing that globalization's not that powerful in terms of uh, forcing policy change, uh, I think that that is just another piece of evidence that goes to show that the inequality we see in the United States really is a domestic political choice. Like if you look at sort of the, the wealth of the, the top 1% versus the bottom 50, the trajectory of that inequality has been much worse in the United States than it has been in the EU. Why? Because they've got a much more robust welfare state in the EU. The, the inequality we see is because we have a skimpy social safety net. It's not because business exists or because we have globalization. Um, it's been because we choose to have a very threadbare social safety net in this country. Um, part of that is racism. Um, there's, there's good evidence from 
uh, Sacer Dope, um, as well as some other um, Alicina, as well as further economists showing that that sort of um, racial bias is one of the reasons that America has a thin safety net. Um, it's, it's long sort of not been particularly amenable to, to socialism. Um, and so that's just what I would say on the, the sort of trajectory of globalization um, writ broadly. Now, what I would say in terms of the sort of industries that I've, I've studied here and policy recommendations, um, you know, one, one of the things that I, I point out, is, you know, in the final chapter of the book is I give a sort of set of recommendations to each of the actors. And there's definitely these like smaller things um, that these different in, um, actors can, can do. So, right, like the, the pharmaceuticals industry, um, you know, they're, they're oddly unpopular. And when I say oddly unpopular, if you step back and you think about it for a second, these aren't tobacco companies, right? Like these are companies that make life-saving medications. Just if you didn't know anything, you would think that they would be amongst the most popular businesses in America. Uh, and they're not. And, and you know, there, there are reasons for that, right? But it's sort of... COVID and the vaccines really present pharmaceutical companies uh, an opportunity to like reshape their public image. One of the things they might think about doing is having like a bar association kind of thing. So, you know, a bar association in the, in the law, if you don't practice the right way, you can get disbarred. Well, if the pharmaceuticals industry had something like that, where the Martin Scarellis of the world effectively got kicked out of the industry, you know, that, that, would, that would be helpful. Um, and that's not the sort of only thing I talk about in the book. I just I use that as an example of un, once you dig underneath the surface at these sort of grand level theories, um, there are a lot of smaller reforms that could really be popular. Um, another one that I talk about is that the U.S. Trade Representative's office, as, as much as I like them and as good of a, a job as I think they do on, on many circumstances, they've sort of got an imbalance in terms of who they listen to and who they don't. Um, in terms of who are the cleared advisors, they're almost all from business. Um, I don't think it would be the, the worst idea to include more activist organizations in the process of creating trade policy. And I think that that might also help activists be a little more pro-trade too, because one of the things that could get negotiated in the Biden administration is an environmental goods agreement, right? This would be something that would reduce the trade barriers and reduce the tariffs on things like solar panels and wind turbines. That would be really, really great for both trade and the environment, right? Like, you know, given, given climate change, it might not be the worst idea to have solar panels just be super cheap and put them everywhere. An environmental goods agreement could do that. So this is another one of those areas where I think that progressive activists could, uh, I, I would hope that they would recognize that trade actually can promote their causes um, more than I think sometimes they do. Yeah, absolutely. I went on the the Weeds uh, podcast, the Vox podcast, <laughs> at some time, like a year ago, two years ago. Time doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and one of my main points was that it, it is frustrating, uh, because then it was the Democratic primary, it was frustrating to watch so many candidates on the left traffic in really thin understandings of trade and the economy. Yeah. Uh, when, you know, the numbers don't point to the solutions that they're providing, and it often felt like a way to escape having really difficult conversations about, you know, inequality. And instead, it was right. like a scapegoating towards trade. Um, right. And so, yeah, I, I've pulled my hair out about 
you know, frustrations that the Democrats and the left more generally oftentimes view trade so skeptically. Yeah, um, well, I, this is really frustrating, too, because so like Bernie Sanders really likes the Scandinavian countries, but then never points out that Denmark is super pro-trade, right? If you're tiny Denmark, your businesses can't survive if they don't sell to Germany and France and the UK and well, not the UK anymore. Well, UK, not in the EU anymore, but still. Right. <laughs> if you're Denmark, you've got to be pro-trades. And so then you have a big social safety net. Like you marry capitalism with social justice via a social safety net. And it was just always, it's always frustrated me that he doesn't quite see that because to me, that's, that's the obvious solution is that you use capitalism and globalization to create wealth and then a, a genuinely robust welfare state and social safety net to make sure that opportunity is broad-based and economic growth is inclusive. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm with you in, in sort of getting a little frustrated with um, Warren and Bernie for not seeing that despite often having good ideas elsewhere. Yeah, it, it was, you know, painful to have to critique some of their ideas, but um, I'm forgetting now who, who wrote it, but there's such great work on, you know, free trade as part of like a cosmopolitan bundle of ideals yes. that that are important. It's part of being a part of an open uh, that, and inclusive That's probably society. Kim Clausing's book. Okay. Yes. Yep. There it is. Um, and that to me is, you know, a really important point and an aspect of trade that's difficult to model and difficult to quantify but that My connection that this will actually change as the as we sort of have generational cohort replacement within the democratic party because if you look at young democrats they typically have very cosmopolitan values um whereas the elizabeth warrens of the world and, and it, you know particularly warren can can almost have this like left-wing economic nostalgia <laughs> Um, and, and I, I see sort of protectionism fitting very well with that kind of nostalgia, but it doesn't fit at all well with the, the kind of millennial cosmopolitanism that you see kind of in, in sort of the younger cohort coming up. I mean, maybe, maybe that's wrong, uh, but, but I, I hope that that is the case. Well, only, only time will tell. I'll have to have you back in the next 30 years. Um, <laughs> we can touch base on how that millennial cosmopolitan aged. Um, so our, our last question is... Um, well, it, it used to be a real favorite soapbox of mine, um, but I'm curious what your new book can tell us about the debate over the TPP, uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, which was oh. at one point promising to be the largest trade deal in, in history, right, if I'm not mistaken? Yeah. Uh, but which was ultimately scuttled, or at least the U.S.'s participation in it was scuttled. Yeah. Um, well, I... I think it, it shows that it was really a, a mistake for progressive activists to, to oppose it. Um, I get why they did because they, you know, for a lot of these activists, they associate trade with like big business and these like global institutions that seem really remote, like the World Trade Organization. But like, I, I really think that my research shows that, that that's not the best way to think about this, right? Like there's a lot of ways in which you can use trade agreements to promote activist goals, they win a lot more often than, than they think they do. Um, I, you know, I, I'll be interested to see how activist organizations think about my research, if they think about it at all. Um, because on the one hand, I could see some of them being very um, motivated by and encouraged by seeing this evidence that they, they achieve their goals via trade a lot more often than is commonly understood. Um, so we'll, we'll see. 
Um, so I think it shows that it was a mistake. I mean, there were a lot of areas within the TPP where you could see progressive activists would have won if we'd gotten the TPP. So in Malaysia, they've long had sort of human rights problems. And what was going to happen within the TPP is that Malaysia was going to get access to the U.S. market. Uh, but after three years, they were going to lose that access if they didn't demonstrate progress on human rights, particularly human trafficking reform. What was this designed to do? It was designed to get businesses in Malaysia like hooked on that access to the U.S. market. And then those businesses would put enormous pressure on the Malaysian government to do better vis-a-vis human rights. Right. And so this was a mechanism by which we were going to use this giant market we have in the United States to promote human rights improvement in Malaysia. And like we didn't do that. Like we, we lost that because we walked away from the deal. Right. And that's just one example. You can look at all kinds of other examples. Um, you know, there, there was stuff around Vietnamese labor that was going to be really helpful. There was probably going to be stuff around environmental standards and the Convention on the International Trade in Endangered Species that was going to be really nice. There were going to be a lot of areas where progressive activists were going to get what they want while trade was expanded at the same time. Um, and, and we didn't get that. And the other thing that I would say is that we didn't get all of the normal benefits we think about with trade, right? So, you know, I I was first in my family to attend college. Um, you know, I spent the first 11 years of my life in a mobile home. Like, my dad worked in a steel mill. Like, I, these are my people. Like, I'm them in a tie. And, like, I, I care if they can, like, afford stuff. And when we make food more affordable, when we make clothing more affordable, when we make washing machines and cars more affordable... Like that makes their lives a little bit easier, and and we lost that by walking away from the TPP, um, and so that's just you know that's worth noting. Like it, I I can really get frustrated by this notion that the only people who benefit from trade are like the wealthy elite. That's not true. Like average people benefit from trade in in enormous ways. Um, so yeah, walking away from the TPP was really a, you know it was really an unforced error. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I can critique the secrecy of the TPP all day and some of the missteps, but uh, ultimately the day that we walked away was a really frustrating and sad one. Um, But thank you so much for your time. And for everyone listening, um, you know, be sure to pre-order Competitiveness and Death, Trade and Politics in Cars, Beef and Drugs, which will be here in March, which... Time isn't real anymore, but I imagine will come faster than any of us anticipated. Um, Thank you so much for your time and for your incredible insights. Thanks, Hillary. It, It was super fun. Thank you for inviting me.